0: And the opportunity here is that when you go into a school and you talk to teenagers about the attention economy and the amount that their attention is worth, they are fired up and they want to change this narrative. And they don't want to sell their souls to these tech companies.
1: Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Globe Podcast. On social media, we tend to only share half of our story or very tiny portions of our story. We curate, we clean things up, we present a view that we think others will like, and research has shown that can be toxic. And we know in our hearts that the social media habit has caused us to pursue the value of social currency rather than social impact. This week's episode features a deep discussion about the impact of technology on our mental health, specifically the mental health of kids and teens. These days, kids know how to operate a digital device before they even know their own name. They're getting less sleep, spending less time together, and part of what suffers is the art of connection. Here to offer insight is Larissa Ney, also known as Lars. She founded the nonprofit Hashtag It was an idea that started in her college dorm room and has grown to have a worldwide following today. She is pioneering the future of digital wellness for the next generation. Half the story's goal is to help future generations create a healthy relationship to social media and technology to ensure we still develop those neural pathways that keep us emotionally connected we discussed the importance of digital wellness half the story's upcoming global day of unplugging the education programs her brand has created that are empowering youth to create healthy boundaries with technology manage passive consumption and to mind their scroll as a way of teaching how to be more deliberate in how they direct their attention. Lars also shares the challenges of building a brand, leadership, the ways to create healthy remote work culture and her non-negotiables for maintaining her own self-care. Oh, and I should mention uh, that her pug became part of the interview at one point and you might hear his cute snoring in the background. Hi, Lars. Great to be here with you.
0: Hey, Derek. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation for a number of reasons, uh, partly because you know, I believe so strongly in what you're doing, and I think an important part of well-being and living a fulfilling life has a lot to do with relationships and the quality of our connections. You know, Not just how we make connections, but also how we alter them, like how we improve them. And, you know, what's great about your programs is that they're empirically based and they seem to take a holistic approach to digital wellness, addressing, you know, both what's happening internally, mind, brain, and externally and how we engage with the world. And, you know, my wife and I, you know, we didn't grow up with technology the way Gen Z and, and millennials have. And, you know, we observe how younger generations are impacted by rapid technological change and you know we aren't yet parents but should we be so lucky to be parents one day we certainly hope our children can grow up with the digital wellness sensibilities that half the story is supporting and facilitating so i kind of see you as uh something that i personally really need (laughs) and uh you know like so with that let's start with your story both halves of it and uh You know, I love the name of your organization and how did it come to be?
0: Well, I think like the best things in life, our brightest ideas sometimes come at the darkest hours, uh, whether it be literally or figuratively. And for me, you know, I, I sit here as someone that is now, I guess you could say, on the forefront of the digital wellness movement, but I'm also someone that has contemplated whether life is worth living. And when I was in college, I actually, when I knew members on your team and I was working in the fashion world, I was really you know one of millions of young people around the world that were impacted by both the positive side of social media by building a career at a young age and being able to go to fashion week, you know, being some like girl from the middle of the Midwest who didn't really ever have anyone from that world. And that was powerful. But then I also saw the extreme tool of destruction that technology could and was for me in a lot of ways. I had this social following and this this whole life, um, but behind the scenes, I was crumbling and I had suffered depression and from suicidal ideation um, pretty much since I was 16 years old, but I didn't really know what it was. I thought it was always just being stressed out and overwhelmed. And then I started to realize that, you know, first of all, I had a mental health problem that I needed to get, take care of. But second of all, technology plays a role in our mental health. We all have mental health. Not all of us have a mental illness, but, given just the data that we've seen and the way that our world has shifted and how technology is actually changing faster than our brains and inherently changing the way that the next generation works. I was like, I need to pause, first of all, because my mental health needs it. But second of all, because I want to rewrite this story. And I believe that with knowledge is power and that if we educate kids and we use tools and we use technology, that we can help them develop a healthy relationship with it because it's like fitness and wellness. And we expect that kids are gonna have healthy relationships with tech, but we throw the technology in front of them before they even know their own name or how to cope with their own emotions. And that was it. I had the light bulb moment for half the story sitting in my dorm room. um, I remember vividly just being in my dorm room, staring at an empty bed right next to me, um but somehow still having this vision that even though i had lost my friends and my best friend who was my roommate because they didn't want to be in my life anymore that there was this fire inside of me that i knew that i could rewrite my own story through getting my help but also that everyone has a half the story and that if we use social media in a more authentic way and we use research and we use education and we use advocacy you know this is the path forward for a brighter future and the one that i won't stop fighting
1: and can you speak more to half the story like as in yeah. we're we're sharing what you see in social media typically is not the full story and and likely not even half it maybe a tip of the iceberg
0: yeah half lucky yeah and so half the story you know where the name comes from is it started literally as this idea that Half the story, we only share half the story on social media. But the parts that connect us are not, you know, the parts that, you know, oh, Derek, sure, you're a founder, I'm a founder. Oh, sure, maybe you win awards and I win awards. Or maybe we do this and we do that. But the things that really connect us are the conversations like, oh, Derek, you lost someone you love, so did I. Or, oh, Derek, you struggle with digital wellness or balancing your own personal relationships because maybe you prioritize your business more than your own self. Like, I don't know if that's the case, but it's a conversation that I have a lot with other founders. And I was just over the avocado toast movement. And this was like six years ago before anyone was talking about mental health and technology. And so that's where the conversation started. And so I printed stickers, got a $250 grant, and then thirty thousand young people around the world started to have that same story. And so, you know, I basically spent a year advocating and teaching young kids how to use technology to talk about mental health. Uh, but then I realized, after you know thousands of you know conversations and and just surveys and through speaking with educators and parents that. We aren't building a solution. You know, we can talk about mental health, we can talk about advocacy, and that's an important part of this movement and is why we created the Global Day of Unplugging, but we need to use education and research to really tell us and go beyond the traditional scales of mental health. Because mental health isn't just a isn't just a multiple choice answer, right? We need to use AI and technology to understand voice recognition and journaling and pulling keywords to see where kids are really at and build them, A, a tool that allows them to develop a healthy relationship with tech, and two, an educational program, which is Social Media U, that we can implement and bring to the masses.
1: Nice. I want to come back to the programs you mentioned and the Global Day of Unplugging. Uh, to answer your question, yes, I've certainly paid the price for prioritizing everything else over my own well-being and... That's a separate conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: it, it,
0: That's half the story.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Before getting into your programs and what you're doing and, and the impact that you're making, I'd like to somehow peel back the layers on what impact you're seeing around some of these technologies and the ways in which you know, social media and, and other technologies that we rely on day-to-day are adversely impacting our physical and, and, and mental health?
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think that's a good place to just kind of zoom out and start. And so I think, you know, the next generation is growing up in a time that no generation before can ever understand and, or can empathize with. They're growing up in a world where technology is not a part of their life. Technology is at the center of it. And what we've realized through the work that we've done and just zooming out is that it's not enough to say technology is causing anxiety, technology is causing depression, but we have to really peel back and understand why it's doing that. And what the science is telling us and the data tells us is that. You know, for example, kids are sleeping less because blue light is one of the greatest disruptors to sleep. And sleep is a critical part of that mental health, social, biological matrix to optimize your well-being. So they're losing sleep. Um, Before the pandemic, kids were spending 30% less time in real life together than kids were in the 90s. This is pre-pandemic, mind you. Um, And as a result, we've started to see that, you know, the EQs and the emotional intelligence of the next generation is actually changing. And, you know, from a very scientific level, you know, what we're seeing is that, when you're a young kid, you know, your brain is not fully developed, you have the prefrontal cortex that's making you know, that is developing really until the age of 27. And that's the area of your brain that is making key decisions and strategy and rationale and reason. When you're a kid, you're relying on the limbic system, which is all about emotion and technology and social media through these dopamine hooks that they've designed are not just, you know, dopamine hits that are hitting, you know, once in a while. But our brains and these kids' brains and limbic systems are getting trained that that is what self-validation is. And we are basically designing these neural pathways that are getting in the way with our own emotional relationship with ourselves and our ability to problem solve, our ability to stay focused. And, you know, I'm sure you've also seen the increase in not only anxiety and depression, but also in ADHD. And so at half the story, you know, I think the conversation has just been so broad in terms of like, okay, technology is causing this, but like, we're not talking about, okay, but why, like, What are the biological, what are the social factors? But then more importantly, how do we help these kids understand exactly how to shift those things so that they can feel better about themselves? And that really is through designing new neural pathways and applying things like mindfulness, like you use in your yoga classes or CBT, like you use in some of the meditations that are designed and applying those principles to technology and emotional well-being. Um, And that's, you know, the reason why we're doing that is because now we're living in a mental health crisis and technology, you know, we I interview teens and I wish I had like a, I could play this for you right now. You know, it it, it makes you want to cry because you talk to these kids and there was a very poignant line to to that young kid said to me. One was a teenager that said, my teacher tells me to take a break on Zoom, but I literally don't know what to do, but to go on TikTok. And then I just feel bad about how I look and I don't know how to get out of the cycle. Like they don't know how to, like a break from one technology is jumping to another. And then the other thing that we've seen is, you know, young kids that are even teenagers are feeling sad because their little siblings are not even communicating with them. Like three and four year olds are staying behind technology. One because you know technology has become a babysitter for a lot of people, and like a lot of people don't have resources to hire nannies and keep kids engaged. Um, but the other is because you know these little kids, like their brains are literally being changed by the amount that there's of time they're spending on technology, which is replacing the key faculties and things that you learn as a kid. Um, and I think that that's the part that like, you know, we're living in this right now. But I'm telling you, if you zoom out in 30 years, the way that humans engage with each other and their emotions is going to be wildly different than it was 30 years ago. And some kids, you know, might not even be able to manage their own emotions. um, Because we're already starting to see that like, identifying, engaging and feeling because we like zap out and like, don't face our own realities because technology is like our coping mechanism. And it's the coping mechanism for many young kids. It's their shield. And it's the thing that we don't really talk about.
1: I mean, that speaks to why the work that you're doing is so important. And last week I interviewed Dr. Larry Rosen. He's a co-author of The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World it will be the episode following this one episode number 17 and in that book he speaks to prefrontal cortex and top down versus bottom up processing and how this this bottom up as you said limbic um information is uh you know at times hijacking you know our ability to um exert executive control over what we're attending to and and so forth and i i can only imagine how challenging that must be for someone who uh, has yet to develop that muscle, that ability to decide what information to enhance versus what information to suppress. And uh, I think I mentioned this in my conversation with him, like, I, I don't know how as a child, I would have dealt with that. Like, I probably would not have dealt, done well in that environment. And you know, something else you said, no, and oh, go ahead.
0: No, continue something else really interesting
1: something else he said that uh, just occurring to me now he says you know ultimately because they frame the conversation uh with respect to how animals forage for food and they use a model i think it's called the optimal foraging model or um marginal value theorem and he he, the equivalency is that you know we humans are foraging for connection essentially and you know as you were speaking it led me to think that what's suffering is the the art of connection, like the art of how we connect with each other. I'm really sad about where we're at is, is what I'm trying to get at. And, you know, one of the things he also said was that, that there isn't that much that we can do about it. To your point, rigorous product development at many of these companies, technologies that we all use employ behavioral scientists for both good and bad. And there are forces at play that are extremely difficult to counter. And that's what we're all up against.
0: Yeah. And it is. It is what we're up all up against. But you know, I think one thing we always say to kids, and we say this a lot at half the story, is there's a difference between connecting and connection. And you have to choose what you want in your life. You can have a hundred little dots and you can connect with them or you can have really deep connections. And when we think about the way that our world and social media has shaped, you know, what we value as society, what these young kids are being taught is that connecting is more valuable than a connection. But we really have this tremendous responsibility to reverse that narrative for humanity because we're seeing the impacts that it's having on us, you know, socially, politically, and also just from the health crisis and, you know, spreading false information a hundred times faster than truth. And so I think despite the sad part, I will say, and, you know, I'm sure anyone that knows me would say this, is that, and just like half the story... When there are dark times, there's opportunity for light and opportunity. And the opportunity here is that when you go into a school and you talk to teenagers about the attention economy and the amount that their attention is worth, they are fired up and they want to change this narrative and they don't want to sell their souls to these tech companies. They want to use these platforms to create good and to raise their own voices, but you know, at the end of the day, they're becoming much more aware than, for example, the 60-year-old plus age group who is at home and maybe doesn't have any friends or is, you know, elderly and disconnected and social media is their only way in. I think the next gen is waking up. You know, we see it in Gen Zs and, you know, yes, they love the remote workforce and they love flexibility, but they want in-person connection because they want to rise up and they want more opportunities in their career. And I think, you know, at half the story that's the big rock for us to move is how do we get people to love connecting with each other and the things that they love more than technology
1: so let's dive into the how so one of your programs is the social media edu how is that being implemented is that something that kids now experience at certain schools and what does that program look like
0: that's a great question. So there's really um, two different models for social media EDU. One is more NGO to NGO, sort of our version of, you know, the B2B model. Um, and then the other is, you know, NGO to school district or specific school. So for example, um, you know, we've we're designing about 34 weeks of curriculum specifically for the YMCA so that they can implement it through their chapters. And for them, they meet on a weekly basis, but it's a little bit different than like a traditional school model. And so that's going to be a custom program for them that we also hope to scale to other NGOs like the Girl Scouts. Um, In terms of the program that we've already developed and tested, so Social Media U is a six-week program that's been designed specifically for freshmen in high school, and basically what that program does is it takes teenagers and it's it takes teacher teenagers through you know the biology of digital wellness um but also you know training them on how to be digital wellness activists and how to activate around mental health in a way that is supportive of the movement rather than destructive because at half the story we believe that like nutrition you know technology is our water it's our food we can't survive without it and so you know we have to identify whether we're using healthier unhealthy engagement um you know, within our technology and teach kids how to do that to build new neural pathways. And throughout the program, you know, what we do is we have an AI app that actually allows the students to respond as to how they're feeling um, about their social media use, about their sleep, so that at the end of the course, um, we can understand, you know, the improvements and, and how you know, how these kids are actually doing after the fact. Um, And our vision with this in this tool that we continue to iterate on is to actually build a larger AI research tool so that kids can get paid to opt into studies so that we can do more research on like a local and global basis, um, as well as turn it into a companion tool so that teens can like keep track and have almost like a you know, a coach that helps them, you know, with their mood and and how to adjust their tech habits to support it, and so that's how it works. And you know, what we've seen from the program so far is that teens are actually really liking it. Um, you know, over sixty percent of the students that participated in our initial pilot program um, walked out having a more intentional relationship with technology. Um, started using our our tools. So we actually have a session that teaches them how to hack their technology, which is basically unhacking the way that the designers have made it so that they're less addicted. So doing things like taking the taking the color out of your screen, adding an away message for your text messages, sort of things that help disrupt the attention economy that has been designed to hook us all in. And so, you know, they love it spicy, they love it fiery, you know, we have to get these kids fired up. If we just sit back and show them, you know, photos of a brain like a textbook from the 1980s, they're not going to care, you have to charge them up in the same way that they're they're getting charged about all the other causes that they're getting behind, um, and you know that's my thought on this too. Is like the nonprofit space needs to be flipped upside down you know, I've worked in CPD and fashion and marketing. And my whole approach is, you know, we spend millions of dollars selling these products to these kids. Why don't we spend that money and use this space, this ad space to empower them? And so we have a lot of fantastic partnerships. Um, you know, one actually being with Pinterest, they're the only comp- social media company that is offered to promote our resources or put money behind our resources on their platform, um, which has been really interesting. But we also have, you know, other partnerships with Things like ads for change, where we have access to $100,000 ad spots that tell us to tell people to get off technology and not to stay on it, like the anti-advertisement.
1: Has Pinterest made any changes as a result?
0: yeah so they've actually you know they they've been they have an entire team dedicated to um mental wellness and they actually have launched a whole mental health fund and you know internally so they've done a couple of things most recently they've actually banned all dieting ads on their platform so they won't be doing like any dieting ads whatsoever um they also have launched a creator code for all of their creators to follow um, in order to have more inclusive content across the board. And they're continuing to, you know, invest in more policies, you know, and, and really change the way that they're working with advertisers on the back end, um, but to more importantly, like, I think, keep the next gen's mindset in mind. And um, it's been really interesting because like, you know, I will tell you, (laughs) I've had a lot of conversations with different social media platforms. And I think, you know, they're kind of the only ones that I've seen really speaking to NGOs in a really serious way and getting insights from the next gen on how they can improve um, their policies overall. Because at the end of the day, it takes two to tango. And I've done a lot of advocacy work within social platforms and sort of, you know, talking to them about why or why not, you know, things that they're doing are good or bad for the next gen. And, you know, I can do this work all day long. I can shout things at the wall. I can mobilize youth. But, you know, we need the social platforms to get on board um, in a really big way because humanity is, you know, (laughs) humanity's mental health is at risk.
1: Yeah, the stakes are that high. Without naming any names or companies, are there any conversations around certain Feature changes that you found interesting?
0: Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's interesting because I think you know within the last year everyone, especially I'm sure you guys too, then the iOS 9 change has flipped everyone's marketing strategies upside down. And so, you know, I think internally right now, all of social media is being turned on its head partially because of that change and because of Apple coming in and like giving people the power. I mean, Apple's giving people the power to take away their data from the Facebooks and Instagrams of the world. But at the end of the day, Apple's still going to get their data. So no matter what, we're not in control. It's just a shift of power, right. And, and of ownership. And, you know, I think there's still a really long way to go on that. Um, you know, I think brands are, or the platforms are trying to implement more content and implement more CSR changes. But at the end of the day, you know, to me, it's like, how are you, how are you how do you have checks and balances around your advertisers? And also, like, what does that cadence look like, you know, depending on the ages of your users, like, I don't think anyone under the age of, you know, 18 years old should be getting targeted between, you know, five and 10,000 ads a day, which is what we all see, right? Like, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of changes that still need to be made, and we need to advocate for and we've got we've got a long way to go. We really do. Um, But I like to try to find the positives in it and, and really try to like, have the dialogue instead of you know have like i think the cancel culture mentality which social media has created for us because i think tough conversations are the only way forward and i think i'm just that kind of person like let's sit at a table and let's talk about why you won't do this Mm -hmm. and if it's a financial reason let's talk about it um and let's weigh the pros and cons between humanity and you know this financial piece and think about are there other ways to offset that cost like i i just i think there's solutions if if people want to work together, but if we continue to work in our own corners, it makes it really hard to, you know, to write a story.
1: Are there certain features that you find are the most deleterious or the most damaging say like likes or follows? And, and if so have any of those features come up in, in these conversations that you're referring to?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. So, you know, on the So first of all, likes is terrible. And I, and I think, to be honest with you, the way the TikTok algorithm works is actually almost worse than the traditional Instagram algorithm, because now there's no rhyme or reason. And like, it's actually become like this lottery where kids get addicted to like the potential of getting in on the For You page. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at news and media, there's basically, which is actually something I studied way back, they change their screen about every six seconds. And if you look at TikTok, they are changing the amount of videos that come in and out within like every five seconds is absolutely just mind blowing. And it's pulls your brain in, like they're doing this to keep you as soon as you think you're over something, they're giving you something else, right. And, you know, it's like this assembly line of information that hooks you in. And I think that, you know, it's incredibly destructive But the scary part is, is that, you know, that's ultimately driving, you know, the commerce for these brands. And like now our attentions have been shifted because of technology. And we only can pay attention for two seconds at a time to the point where Instagram and Facebook are no longer interesting to us. So now we're moving to this platform. So I think, you know, that you know that that constant you know showing of information is one thing, but then also the affirmation piece. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the dopamine loop. Like we all know it, and it's not going away. You know, these kids are putting their lives on the line in some instances um, to go TikTok viral for what? Like our the value of our society has become more on social currency than you know social impact and. We're living in this world where the creator economy, the 1% of, of social, social media capital and currency controls 99% of the attention economy. And in the same way that we have had to put checks and balances on large corporations with monopolies in the world, we have to create checks and balances for this micro universe of social influence in order to bridge the world between social currency and social impact.
1: I heard in a recent interview you gave that roughly 80% of teens now aspire to be influencers on social media is that correct?
0: Yeah, 80% of teens are are aspiring for a life that doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, that's a large number. I wonder about so many people aspiring for a life as you as you put it uh, that doesn't exist. You know, what are the longer-term impacts on career paths on identity at both the individual level and the macro level of communities. I'm struggling to see how that plays out well, given that we're talking about such a large percentage of these generations, especially in our country where we tend to struggle to provide effective safety nets, particularly for those most in need.
0: And the thing is, it doesn't, Um, it doesn't. And to be young, And to let social media, and I think there's a paradox here, right? Like there's a paradox in that young kids see social media as a place to express themselves, but at the same time, they're chained by their social media identity. And I think that's the paradox that we're all living in. You know, as a result, it's the tension between connection and connecting between, you know, self-identity, And also, you know, self-isolation and, you know, not even knowing who you are, but using this digital world to pull it all together. And I think when I think about the future of the world, I just, my concern is that if we don't start to value humanity for what it is, we're going to lose it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a powerful statement.
0: I, You know, and I think, you know, in the work that you're doing at GLOW is, you know, this is exactly an example of healthy technology consumption, right? Like not all, when we look at kids and we teach them, you know, if you tell your kids drugs are bad, they're going to go smoke a joint and they're going to go take shrooms. And that's just what happens. If you tell your kids technology is bad and you build that idea that technology is, this place, it's bad, but it's also your lifeline. You develop unhealthy habits, just like food, right? If if you're a kid and your mom guards you eating a burger and doesn't want you to have experiment anything, you're probably going to have a disordered eating pattern in your life. And I think we just need to recognize that social media is here to stay. There are healthy and unhealthy ways to engage. There are mindful ways to engage through things like GLOW, um and we can use this tool to bring us forward and to help us to improve our mental and physical wellness or we can use it to destroy us and at the end of the day it's our choice but more so i think my responsibility to ensure that that next generation has those tools because you don't wake up knowing this just like you don't wake up when you're 2 years old and know that an apple is better than a lollipop And it takes, it takes practice and habits and a lot of parents and schools and districts don't have the resources or don't have the time to do that. And I think that's why the B2B, you know, from a half the story perspective, the more that we can reach the nonprofits, like the, the, even Lower East Side Girls Club or the Girl Scouts or YMCA, the more impact we can make, because, you know, as what for as much as social media can destroy us, for some of these, you know, also younger kids in lower demographic areas, social media and tech can save them. And that's like the power of these amazing coding programs, right, and like teaching kids how to get out of their circumstances. It's just about striking the right balance. I'm also curious for you, Derek, like as a business leader working in, a, I can't imagine the growth that you all have tried to have had to try to manage during the pandemic. Like, and as a founder, I, I can empathize with those struggles. But, you know, do you think that leaders um, that have the keys to these larger kingdoms are, thinking about Gen Z's and mental health in the workplace. Traditionally Gen Zs that are walking into these roles in social media and CX and like thinking about digital wellness as a part of their corporate structure.
1: That's a great question. I the company that I started, Glow, we used to be Yoga Glow. We're self-funded and I referred earlier to how I uh, certainly sacrificed a, a lot and my part of that being my physical well-being to make that happened and to be a part of our evolution i sp- spent a lot of it heads down and not networking and not uh being as connected as i'm starting to be with other business leaders and you mentioned large entities i i certainly don't at this point in time uh spend any time with executives at large companies. So I I can't speak directly to that. Uh, there are plenty of people thinking about conscious business and how to run businesses in a way that are, uh, considering the total set of needs of all stakeholders. And there are a lot of organizations doing great work in that regard. You asked about CX or also known as customer experience, you know, our customer experience team and how we address digital wellness. So I'll just zoom in on that one as an example. Um, in the early days of our company, starting like way back in November, 2008, for the first four years, I handled all of our customer support tickets. So I know what it's like to be available for an unhealthy amount of hours every day supporting customers and the emotional toll that uh, you know the highs and lows that that can take the current configuration of our CX team does a few things and I'll I'll list what comes to mind in no specific order you know, it's really important to have clarity about working hours and for uh, team members to respect uh time off if we know there's going to be a surge in support tickets say during a holiday or around the release of a new feature part of the team leader's role is to make sure that that's communicated well in advance and that expectations are expressed and negotiated in advance you know so that um, people have the opportunity to um, indicate the extent to which they'll be available or if they have other things going on in their lives Uh, part of that also requires solid communication from other teams internally to notify CX of any updates well in advance that might impact ticket volume so that there aren't any surprises. Also, our current CX team is really good at taking breaks. They message each other, uh, we use Slack, so they message each other via Slack when a break is needed. And every Wednesday we have a company-wide self-care hour where we don't have meetings uh, we don't email or direct message each other and after that hour every week our cx team meets uh, currently it's virtually and they they use that time um, to give shout outs or praise to other members of their team specifically around how that person helped with a challenging situation and i've been told by our, our director of cx that um, that time of vulnerability is, um, is something that really helps create connection and also uh, serves as a learning opportunity, uh, for how others navigate certain situations. And it, it creates greater team unity and uplifts each other. You know, that moment of, 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 of praise and recognition are, you know, th- those moments are powerful and, uh, they, they can't happen enough in my experience, uh, now that we're all remote. You, you can't just walk around the block with a teammate to blow off steam. So, you know, in moments that are, um, challenging, like these virtual rituals are just critical. Also, every manager has weekly one-on-one meetings with direct reports, and uh, we use a tool called lattice to help structure those. However, there are lots of great tools like that out there. Um, maybe I can speak a bit more to those later, uh, those, Meetings are also opportunities, among other purposes, um, for, for uh, teammates to process and bring out into the open anything that would benefit from helpful conversation. So, you know, that ongoing dialogue and feedback is routine and, and not sporadic and not a surprise uh, because it's happening every week. Uh, you know, that 's just an example of one team each team has different versions or different routines, depending on what works best for that team uh, that they have created on their own. Uh, some teams check in with emotional disclosure more than others um, however, the weekly one on ones happen company wide that's that 's critical uh, you know also communication is is key i 'm constantly learning how to better communicate. I don't always get it right and I've learned so much about getting better at it over the years. Like there are just there there's so many facets to helpful communication, you know, like how to give and receive feedback. Uh yeah, you know, but just one small example, you know, I try to be mindful of when to send an email, when not to send an email, like the language that's used. You know, we we the more Most of the work that we do in that regard are at the level of anyone managing another human. And so we try to set an example. And so like for myself, like I will, unless it's extremely important and unless I already have that understanding with that person uh, that an email or a Slack may come off hours or on a weekend, I won't do it. You know, I'll use schedule send, for example. I'm also mindful of the language that I use. Like sometimes I'll take a really long time to compose a message to make sure it doesn't have any uh, passive aggressive language or uh, uh, a hidden sense of urgency that I may not be aware of, or, you know, in some way that might cause extra stress that's unneeded. Just really taking the time to be clear and intentional about what it is I'm trying to convey, you know, especially through um, the written word and, and spoken word. Um, but yeah, I believe anyone in a leadership position has uh, the duty to be incredibly mindful about how these technologies are used and the impact that they may have.
0: And I think um, leading with empathy in a time of technology is so critical. And I think, you know, that's one of the biggest things that we have to remember is that we are not all walking commodities, which I think the technological world, whether you're an influencer or whether you're a leader or whether you're on the other side of a Slack channel has done to us. And that at the end of the day, we're all people and we're all hearts. We're not computers. We're hearts. We all care. We all have struggles and you know Derek I'm I remember you know when I heard about Glow in the beginning and you know when some of my ex colleagues were talking about it I was just I was so uh, inspired by what you all had built because you know I'm someone that is building a nonprofit and not doing the venture route out of the gate and building something from the ground up is really one of the most tolling mental and physical things that you can do And I say that because I think it's important that, you know, as I've grown up in this role, I guess, which started as really a passion project on a college campus, but now I've had to kind of grow up into this leadership role and report to a board and all of that. I've really started to take a hard look at the things that you were speaking about, which is how you prioritize yourself as a leader and how you set boundaries and say no, because, what you do as a leader is going to set the tone for your entire institution. And I think it's it's mind-blowing to me now that companies are are starting to have to incentivize employees to take time off because they're not taking it. Like, I think it's P&G or Unilever is literally giving an $1,000 bonus, $250 for every 40 hours you take off. And, you know, we just, I think it's so hard to be a leader because you have this tension between you know, I need to pay my bills, but I also need to, you know, fuel my soul. But I also have this accountability to be a leader. And like, I just, I wish that more leaders could be honest about that, especially in the mental health space, because I think otherwise, it's hard to sometimes you can have a little bit of guilt, you know, because you're just trying to figure out how to how to keep it all going, um, but also be a leader at the same time.
1: Yeah, like you said, building something from the ground up will require a kind of everything you've got effort depending on how I structure team and workload, how I structure roles and responsibilities, and how I set, express, and negotiate expectations with those around me, you know, including family and friends, the extent to which I'm clear with myself about and follow through on self-care non-negotiables like all of that seems to determine how my well-being will flow under uh, invariably unrelenting uh, conditions. Because the reality is for someone starting something new, there's so much coming at you every day that is often outside the realm of your control. So the challenge as well as the opportunity is how to create a healthy relationship with that reality and I like how you said, growing up into a leadership role, you know, that is certainly my experience. I feel like I'm constantly faced with opportunities to grow and grow up. And I'm so grateful that I've been able to be in this position for so long to allow for that growth to continue. It's, it's never ending. For example, I could do a whole season of episodes just on this topic, the topic of inner and outer work in relation to leadership. I... I I do plan to record some soon, Uh, but just briefly on that note, we went through a period where we had a pretty toxic culture on our team. And it wasn't until I looked deeply at my own behavior and how I was showing up that things started to change. And that began a multi-year process. And I would say it took about three to four years, and we started to emerge out of that era of toxicity about two years ago, give or take a, f- a few months?
0: I mean, well, first of all, thanks for sharing that. I think it it takes a lot of uh, humility to be able to admit that as a leader. I think oftentimes as a founder, you're so focused on your own vision and how you're getting the, n- the next step, but you sometimes forget that people need to really be a part of that and be along for the journey. And I'm obsessed with human resources and people, and I'm fascinated by the way that companies, you know, do or don't invest in it. And if I ever have a venture backed business where, you know, or a very, hopefully very well funded as we continue to grow nonprofit, I feel like the most important thing to me is people. Like it always has been and I've just seen how easy it is to be nice. How easy it is to say, "You know what? Like how's how's your brain today?" Like, sure, we can talk about your KPIs, but just like to check in and and how important that is for the long term of an organization because employee retention is something our world is struggling with and I think it's because if you just look at the startup boom in the past 10 years, like you know, the it's been this, this game of get on a treadmill, hire young people that will run in 100 directions, but don't know exactly where the North Star is. And then they just drop off. And then you keep getting people on the treadmill, but you realize that you're never going to build a family and a real foundation through that. And, you know, I think it would also be interesting. I'm curious, I love that mental health hour, the time for yourself, you know, that you've offered, but I'm curious, like, what, you know, what other things you all are thinking about at GLOW um, from a culture perspective, because culture does play a huge role in mental health. And it's really inspiring me to hear, for to me, to hear that you've really started to prioritize that as a leader.
1: Yeah. So, you know, for me to have even admitted that say five years ago would have been a non-starter. Like I, it wasn't until a lot of therapy, a lot of uh, group work. I joined a, a leadership forum uh, maybe three or four years ago, uh, and then ongoing coaching work. So we work with a group called Reboot.io, and they're amazing. So if it, had it not been for all of that, oh, plus weekly therapy for a long period of time, which which I still do, and I highly advocate for. For I know it's very expensive, but I um, maybe we can get into that too at some point. But you know we. You mentioned people ops. You know, we did not have an end-to-end meaning from onboarding to offboarding, people ops, infrastructure, or strategy. And it wasn't until quite recently that we uh, got serious about creating that and creating uh, the clarity and uh, structure that's needed to really support the vision that we had for healthy culture. You know, like, how do we create a, a, a culture and environment that's both kind and high-performing? And that's a question we're constantly asking ourselves and making uh, changes and iterations to how we do things uh, to keep us moving in that direction. Uh, uh, core values and the respective key behaviors that support those values are critical, you know, along with the routines and practices that support team cohesiveness and clarity. I mentioned only a few of those routines earlier. There, there are so many, um, we now have an awesome head of people on our team driving most of that critical work. And this is part of what I was referring to earlier. Like we could do a whole season of podcasts just on this topic of the systems and practices we're either doing, um, or want to be doing, uh, that which we aspire to be doing uh, to support both a kind and high-performing culture. But I've mentioned many times to our team that it's of prime importance to me that these are not just words in a document or words on a wall, but rather these are ways of being with each other that are mutually beneficial, mutually understood, and practiced. Now, not perfectly, uh, but that we show up with our imperfections, working together. Uh, and I just want to underscore and highlight uh, asterisks and bold that last statement that we are going to make mistakes. We are going to wobble and it will get messy. There will likely be fear and insecurity. The spectrum of feelings that people traditionally want to hide in a work environment you know, are always present. It's just part of being human. But what's most important is how we show up. And come back again and again into conversation and connection, and I highly recommend systems like Fifteen Five or Lattice or other companies that are are doing great work in that 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 um, continuous performance management space, because the the structured weekly or biweekly one on ones and how managers and direct reports are constantly checking in and having that moment to as you say check in on things that typically are are uh historically anyway uh places where people don't want to go like how are you feeling today what's coming up for you you know certainly at the level of um you know I so I'm now uh, our our chief operating officer uh, became our co ceo with me and for example what we do re- very regularly is if something is coming up where we're making a decision on something and say, I'm triggered or he is triggered. We now know each other so well and through coaching and through, uh, the continued use of shared language, we we're able to talk about how, well, you know, that particular word or the decision we're trying to make or that partnership you know, it triggers, uh, something in me that, you know, is from childhood, for example, and something that I'm currently trying to work through and, and, and resolve. And, and I can tell that my thinking is not very clear about it for these reasons. And so let's talk through that and vice versa. Like I can say to him the same thing and we do it in a way that's, very supportive and nurturing and not in any way, you know, ever, uh, weaponized or used to shame in any way. And so what it does is it creates this environment where you know we can really share with thorough vulnerability, thorough uh disclosure, like what's truly going on, you know, versus giving an answer or deflect giving an answer that may come across as sort of uh as a deflection or defensive or Uh, you know, walking away from a conversation knowing that, gosh, you know, I really didn't say everything that I, I wanted to have said, um, or, or even coming back later after having reflected, you know, that conversation we had yesterday, like I could tell that I was feeling something that I wasn't, hadn't fully thought through and I just want to unpack that further with you. And so what I'm excited about is like, how do we scale that across an entire organization? And that's something that we're actively working on, and I know again people over process I know different teams on our team do different versions of that, so the problem typically with one size fits all is that you may have certain teams that are comprised of certain types of people or personalities for which a particular method or process just may not be the best fit and so you know we we try to you know, given the clarity of values and key behaviors, we try to let the best solution, you know, through experimentation and iteration kind of come to the top.
0: That's I love that. I actually I start every meeting or try to um with what's your truth. <laughs> Like, where? what's your truth today? Um, Did you just spill coffee all over your pants? Like, did your dog run away? Are you feeling sad? Like, where are you? Because I think, you know, so often as leaders, we don't think about, and maybe this is part of the social world, like we're so used to just deleting and sending and posting and doing whatever, but we don't realize the profound impact that word choice has on the way people feel and that's actually something we talk about in our digital advocacy training is actually how to create more inclusive social media content whether that's through you know for for people that can't read or for people that can't listen or even thinking about emoji choices because these can all be microaggressions right and like if our life is just one big series of microaggressions or trying to you know demystify Slack messages that come across as passive aggressive, that's all energy that could be going into the output, like the true output. So I think it's, um, First of all, thanks for your vulnerability and and for really sharing how you've made changes as a leader. I think we so often glamorize leadership and we position it as this like overnight glow became X. You have 100, whatever, 200 employees and, you know, look at Derek or, you know, look at like this. But then it's like behind the scenes, there's this whole other journey of growing with your business and better understanding yourself and, you know, understanding and getting real with the fact that. No one's going to believe in you if you don't live these values to your core, no matter how hard that is. So, you know, I really appreciate you sharing that and, you know, appreciate your commitment to digital wellness and, um, you know, just this mission and for also using technology in a healthy way and helping people understand that that is possible through GLOW.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad you brought up the word inclusivity because we think of, those values or our values and some of the other things I spoke to as if we're in the ring doing this together and all, you know, all showing up together in a supportive way that ultimately that creates inclusivity. There are other specific actions I think leaders and companies need to take to address some education around you know, what sure. what can come across as a microaggression, and like what you know what what might you be doing or could you do that you might not be aware of that might um, be harmful to a, yeah. a specific group of people, or yeah. So I, I, it's not it's not it's not simple. It's complex and multi layered and requires intentional commitment and follow through. And yeah, as much as I tend to want things to happen immediately, changing culture and team practices takes time and patience and it has no end point. At least in my experience, there's always more that can be done, always more that can be improved. But it's something that I, I certainly, you know, I didn't create this company to be a leader. I never wanted to be a CEO. I never wanted to even lead people. You know, I, I just wanted to create the experience of being in a real class at home with great teachers. And I was just so inspired by this word yoga. Which the reason why I wanted to frame our conversation is because I was introduced to yoga in a college philosophy class. And I, to me, it was all about connection. Like how do we how do we engage the world such that we're making deeper, more meaningful connections? And how is it that we excavate what it is that that we want? And uh, and to and to you know essentially you know create a life of of flourishing and well-being and so you know all of my efforts in terms of leadership have been you know, completely as a result of loving the work that we do extending that love out to our members our team and wanting to be a part of an environment that just feels emotionally healthy and that's what yeah. that's what that's what drives me and yeah, I think it can be problematic when one sets out to to be a leader for leadership's sake versus to be a leader for the mission's sake or uh the stakeholders' <laughs> yep. s- sake. You know? And so that I think that's where it, that's where I see leadership kind of go awry.
0: Well, I was saying this the other day, and I think this is, you know, this is the the big question out there for everyone with a microphone right now is or for everyone building a business, do you want to have power or do you want to be a leader? Yeah, Because there's a profound difference between the two. And I think we need more leaders in this world because to me, I define leadership as the ability to help your team rise to the best that they can be both in and outside of the workplace. And I think, you know, I don't know, that's it. But I think there's, there's a whole there's a whole new path that's being paved. And it was really fun to hear just about your changes and, and your path forward.
1: And that's the way the world's going, you know, especially for companies like ours and for people who want to work at companies like ours. I agree. Power is really only there to be of service to others. And how do you help others become the best they can be? Now, of course, I'm speaking to my small world of, Leading a small team, however, at the level of society, culture, structures, institutions, government, like that's a broader conversation with with um, much more at stake. But in my situation, there's no really other use or need for power (laughs) in my in my.
0: There really isn't. There really isn't, and that's it. You know, (laughs) that's it. Same goes for social social media power, but um, yeah, but I'm you know, I'm super grateful for, for this opportunity to chat with you.
1: So as I was prepping for a conversation, I was looking at your half the story, Instagram posts, and I noticed on, if not one, maybe multiple, the phrase, mind your scroll. And I yeah. and I saw in the curriculum that you were uh, referring to earlier that you you help teach uh, how to change one's relationship to mindless scrolling and just purely passive consumption, and and how to resist that urge to consume passively. How do you do that? What what what? I would imagine that's an yeah. incredibly difficult skill to teach.
0: Well. You know, it's as, it's just like how do you teach a kid how to ride a bike, you know? I mean, I think when we think about our, our methodology, so first and foremost, you know, the way it starts is, you know, we, we have to introduce these kids to what digital wellness really is. And the way that we describe digital wellness at Half the Story is the idea that you can have a healthy and positive relationship with technology that helps you lead a more fulfilling life. And that is how we define digital wellness. But in the way that we do that, and I think I kind of was explaining this is that, you know, we all have neural pathways. And basically, you know, the way that you make something a habit in your life is by literally training your brain and committing to it, so that you can change your habit over time, right? And What we do is, you know, first in thinking about healthy when we teach the kids, so first we help them really define their relationship with technology, DTR, um, whether it's healthy or unhealthy. And we talk about, you know, and teach them about active versus passive consumption. And we have them actually do an exercise where they track their social media and technology use for the week and identify the way it made them feel and whether it was passive or active consumption so they can understand whether there was an intention or purpose or not. And nine times out of 10, you know, for these kids, they're jumping on without a purpose and nine times out of 10, when they're jumping on without a purpose, they're not feeling so great about their self afterwards, because they're get they're not actively engaged in something it's, you know, when you're not actively engaged in social media. That's when you get lost in the control in the scroll, and you therefore lose track of you know your own mindset. So it's really about first shifting that first behavior: is this intentional or non intentional? What is my purpose? And then from there, you know, we go into how do we actually do habit building and set small steps, like in CBT for therapy. Right? If you're struggling with eating disorder, you you know, oftentimes for
1: our listeners, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT.
0: Yes. Yes, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes, so cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. But basically, it's about changing um, cognitive behaviors and improving emotional regulation. And that happens through a number of coping strategies. And so for me, I like to use the word self-soothing strategies instead of coping because I think coping can be a little bit of a negative word. So um, what we do is uh, kind of going back to this is we teach kids how to actually build new pathways in their brain um, by doing things like, A, manipulating their phone settings things, like the art of tidying up your phone, turning your phone into Grayscale, because your brain is and that is why half the story is black and white, primarily, your brain is actually less interested in black and white color schemes, um, which is why we've chosen the grayscale. Um, and then the second thing we do is we teach them small habits and things that they can do, both that are on their phone and off their phone. So what are small changes you can make? Like starting every morning with, instead of going on your phone, replacing that habit with creativity or play, um, like journaling or art, because I don't know how many of you have done the artist way, but the scary thing is, is that that entire journey is about how to tap into your younger, younger child and play. But what we're seeing is that kids don't know how to activate play and flow state because they're so hooked into their phones. And so for us, it's a, a mixture between changing, you know, building new neural pathways and new habits with hacking your phone and then developing new ways to connect with your emotions and creativities through new tools.
1: So by linking the action with the feeling and then th- them reflecting on that, are they then changing their behavior? Are they realizing, gosh, when I do that, I feel like shit afterwards so I'm just not going to do that thing anymore. Yeah,
0: and and that's where the commitment comes in, right? And that's where, you know, we're we're working on an AI platform that kids could actually download on their phone and allow them to basically measure their like social media habits and their mood, so work together because right now the research tool kind of it doesn't interconnect with that API, um, but we're hoping to get there so that we can be that companion. Be like, hey, you know, you said you're feeling down today, and you've actually spent three times as much time on TikTok, like you can you we suggest that you do this or like here link out to yoga glow and like do a meditation or you know go do this like to kind of so that these kids can see how this impacts their mood in a quantitative way but then give them content and storytelling as something that goes beyond just you know the course
1: nice and last question what are your non-negotiables for your own self-care
0: It's a great question. Um, Non-negotiable number one is I don't work on Saturdays. Um, And I tell people that I think, you know, I used to be someone that worked every day of the week. No bueno. So I don't work on Saturdays. My second non-negotiable is I start every single day doing something for myself. So I've started this new thing where I take a walk every day at 530 or 6am, I have my coffee and it's the first thing I do. And it has absolutely revolutionized my mental health, because I'm someone whose brain goes a million miles an hour in the morning. And then my third non negotiable is, you know, gosh, I would say I I have a couple. But I think, you know, the third for me is, is really human connection. I need to connect with people, at least one person a day in a deep way that has nothing to do with work. Um, because I could work till the cows come home, but I know that what my mental health matrix is physical well being, eating really healthy connecting with people and then ultimately, you know, getting creative, which is a bonus, but one I struggle with the most. Right. And I always look at that as like my pie for my mental health. And, you know, I, these change, these, these, these change a lot, but those are my ones right now. Um, and I'm not afraid to say no, and I'm not afraid to say no. If someone calls me or texts me and I'm like, Nope, this is me time. Sorry. You're not going to get this till Monday. I'm not, I'm not answering you on a Saturday.
1: (laughs) And what's the threshold, that takes you from shallow connection to deep connection like what what typically defines that for you
0: for me it's um you know when you reach flow state and work or creativity it's reaching flow state and human connection and conversation and i will say i feel like i felt that in our conversation today it wasn't like mm. A, Q&A, but like getting into deep paradoxes getting into philosophical ideas um and also being able to examine deeper you know our own patterns and talk about them with friends like hey i notice myself i keep doing this thing i really want to break this cycle like let's talk about like the psychology behind that and why also a lot of my friends are psychiatrists mm-hmm. so we like geek out on just like understanding why people work uh yeah. the way they do but yeah i mean getting in flow irl there's nothing better <laughs>
1: That's beautiful. Well, thank you. I felt the same about our conversation. So when is your global day of unplugging? And is there anything else you'd like to let us know about?
0: Yeah, well, anyone that's listening to this, uh, we have our global day of unplugging on August 7th. And we're looking for different individuals all around the world to take the pledge of presence. And you can do that at the global day of Whether it's for a minute an hour, just disconnect and plug into the things that you love and re-examine your relationship with digital wellness. And then the second thing is if anyone listening is interested in volunteering or donating or bringing social media you to your school you can go to half the story project.com and we have a lot of exciting updates happening this year and you know I'd love to spread our mission with you but thank you so much Derek I also have a lot of fun ideas on how we could potentially do um, maybe some digital wellness yoga classes or maybe there's like some fun things down the road that we could do in, in the new year but outside of that thanks for your leadership and you know hopefully the next time I'm in LA maybe we could grab a coffee it would be really wonderful to get to know you you. better and, you know, just learn more about your journey.
1: I would love that. Let's make that happen.
0: Perfect. It's a date.
1: Thank you, Lars. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008 And because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you The Glow Podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts.